Thank y'all very much. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm kind of protecting a, a froggy voice, and so I was trying not to sing, and it's impossible not to sing that song, especially as the congregation is um, bellowing. Um, hey, we have a bunch of people standing in the back, and I know we've said this before, uh, but maybe some of you missed it. If y'all can move toward the center aisles and, and give room for people who, who need seats in the back, we would really appreciate that. So that, that means you, Mom. Um, <laughs> uh, hey, and if I'll call my mom out, I'll call you out, so keep moving. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, a couple of things before we start that are, that are important. Uh, we've got a huge day today. We have a baby dedication immediately after this service, and we also have a church-wide meal. Uh, so if smart money, let the line dissipate as people are getting their food. Stay for the baby dedication. By the time it's over, food lines will be like almost empty. And then after everyone's served, we're also having a baptism out in the courtyard. And so baby dedication, church-wide meal, and baptism, like that's a lot of stuff going on. It's going to be a lot of fun today. So um, hang around for all of that, and, and I hope you enjoy really, really sweet community here today. Let me pray, and we'll turn our attention to God's Word. Lord, thanks so much for the, the deep gospel truths that we were able to sing today, and thanks, God, that it is such an encouragement to hear the saints of God um, singing your praises. And, and Father, I pray that our hearts would be really pure when we sing, that it would not be about our voices, it would be about your glory. I pray, Father, for that same thing as I preach and as we sit under your word, that this would not be something that, is, that exists to puff our minds up, that, that we would instead sit under your authority and, and marvel at your goodness in Scripture to, to teach us how to live in a way that glorifies you more profoundly. And so, Father, please do that by your Spirit's empowerment and by the authority of your word. I, I pray that you would overcome all the inadequacies that exist in, in my person, and I pray that you would bring us to places of great and joyful conviction. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've asked this question before, but I want to ask it again because I think it bears repeating. Have you, have you ever thought that God was a little bit cruel for giving us bodies that basically physically peak when we're 27, and, and yet we in America live to an average age of 77 years old? You, you know what that means, right? That's, that's a 50-year slide into all sorts of embarrassing deficiencies. That, and I have the tendency sometimes to think that that's a little bit cruel. Now, we are largely an affluent society here in the United States of America, and so we, we try to delay it and to mask it and to diet and to, and to nip and tuck it and then nip and tuck the nip and tuck and all of these things. But aging is inevitable, isn't it? And, and death is inevitable. That's, that's the truth. Death always gets us. And I'll be honest with you, y'all. That is all the more true. It, it is accelerated when we are pursuing God's glory as our top priority. Like life gets harder, not easier, when we are after kingdom things. We as Christians, to be very clear, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But 
The same grace that saves us makes us new creations in Christ. And at that point, because we are new creations in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are set apart for God's work. And Jesus maybe said it most dramatically, unless you're willing to take up your cross daily to follow me, you're not worthy of me, right? So he says that, and ultimately what he's saying there, like we are new creations set apart for God's work, that's Ephesians 2 verse 10, Jesus says in Luke 9, unless you're willing to take up your cross daily to follow me, you can't follow me. Basically, the resulting life of a Christian is marked by sacrificial service. Sacrificial, I mean, take up your cross daily to follow me. It's pretty much a synonym for like really sacrificial service, right? Sacrificial service. And sacrificial service, if we're being really honest, can leave Christians feeling exhausted or maybe even worn out. And that's, that's something that Paul is dealing with in our passage today. So turn with me, if you would, to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 16. Uh, Michael preached on 16 through 18 last week. I was trying to start in chapter 5 and go 1 through 10. I couldn't do it. Uh, you, you cannot preach 5, 1 through 10 without preaching chapter 4, 16 through 18. So we're going to start there and we're going to retread a little of, of his sermon. So we do not lose heart, Paul writes. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's just ask this question. What's Paul's problem? What's Paul's problem in this passage that he's trying to solve for? It's, it's actually the same problem that all of us have. We're all dying. That's what he's talking about here. He, we're, we're all dying. Paul, according to church history, is, is a bald guy. His eyes are bad. He can't hear that well, presumably because he shot shotguns as a kid without earplugs or something like that. His joints are stiff. He doesn't recover anymore from beatings like he used to, and he gets beat all the time for his faith in Jesus. It's a hard life, and I think some of you can relate to that because we are five days past our men's retreat, and, and so you can relate a little bit. We, we had this incredible men's retreat for, for the ladies. You should be jealous. We have so much fun on this men's retreat. Um, guys who didn't come, you should come next year, but, but here's the deal. On our men's retreat, like Saturday night and Sunday morning, I was there, and I had some like 25, 27-year-olds come up to me and, and like straight-faced, they complained about being sore. <laughs> and like, I want to put this in the proper perspective, okay? Like, I, I'm glad you're there. Like, we had 250 men at our men's retreat I bet 200 of them were under 30 years old. Like, I, I think it is so fun. I've been to other churches' men's retreat that I think are so sedentary and lame. I, I love our men's retreat. And, and I, I love that there are that many, you know, 20-somethings here because, honestly, it shouldn't be so at, at Grace Bible Church generally. Like, I'm 54 and I'm bald and our music is old hymns and, like, young people shouldn't come to this church, and they do. And I, I think that is the greatest blessing in the entire world. But 
When you're on a men's retreat and you're 25 or 27 years old and, and you're looking for empathy, <laughs> don't come to me, okay? Like, when, when you start complaining at 27 that you're sore, I, I'm like, you to me look like you're begging for another juice box after a peewee baseball game. Like, you're not sore. You don't, you've never smelled sore. Like, wait till you're 50-ish. I mean, come on. Like, if you're looking for pastoral empathy, find like an, another pastor. Like, it's not going to happen here. There's, there's not a chance. <clears throat> on the other side of that coin... My mom turned 83 years old this past week, which is incredible. Yeah, 83 years old. Now, my younger brother, Fred, is, is the most thoughtful child in our family. Like, it's without a doubt. And, and so he, he got a, a thing of balloons and put them out in the front yard. And here's what it looked like. So that was super sweet of Fred. And, like, he always makes the rest of us look bad. And, and so, I, like, that was fun. But... About an hour later, after Fred had done this, which I thought was super sweet, and it must have been windy or something, but when we came back, this is what it looked like. <laughs> and now, I thought that was pretty funny. I, I'll, I'll let my mom off the hook. She didn't do that. In fact, she told me, and that's the only reason I'm talking about her birthday, she told me she was proud that she had turned 83, which I think is super, super cool, and I, I'm proud of her just for the lady she is. <clears throat> but it, it, this kind of introduces something that I think we should talk about for just a second. Lots of different responses to our own mortality, aren't there? I mean, some people do denial-type stuff. 83 becomes 38. She didn't do it, but, you know, like, I get it. But think about all the ways we try to deny aging or our own mortality. I don't know if you know this or not, but the anti-aging industry is a $62.6 billion a year industry. You think, you think some people are trying to head off old age? Does it work? It doesn't work. Like, when you're 90, you're going to look 90. That's just how this works. Other people try to deal with their own mortality by, by thinking into a deep, dark denial or even a de depression. It, it happens a lot. People go into a real funk because they can't do what they used to do and they, they feel like death is inevitable. Paul's response is actually quite a bit different. Look at verse 17 again. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, when he says that, I think of Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul writes in that book, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, or to us. And, and then in Romans 8, Paul's going to talk about how this fallen world kind of stinks. I mean, it uses things like, for creation was subjected to futility, and we are in bondage to corruption, and there has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. I mean, that doesn't sound fun at all, and, and we groan inwardly, and we don't really understand what's going on a lot of times, and the Spirit has to help us to know how to pray. 
And then you get to Romans 8, 28. And he says, but we are confident that God is working in all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So in the midst of all of this hardship, the, the struggles of life, this, the fallenness and the consequence, God is with us. He hasn't abandoned us. He is with us and he is working for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. So much so that it goes on right after that at the end of chapter 8 and it says, what shall separate us from the love of God? Like, will height or depth or angel or principality or all of these? No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through Christ. Through what he did. So afflictions in this world won't separate us from God or separate us from his love, God is always with us. Well, like the Romans passage, our, our passage today in 2 Corinthians, it's comparative too, right? Verse 17, for this momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, when, when it says that I do not consider our present sufferings are, are worthy of comparison or, or that our momentary afflictions are beyond comparison, what is Paul doing? He's comparing. I know that he's saying he's not, but the fact that he's saying he's not, he's like, it's a bad comparison, but it's a comparison. Okay, so both texts are comparative, and they're saying the glory of heaven is way better than the sufferings of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.17 isn't just comparative. It says that our sufferings are also preparatory. They're preparing us for something. I, I think at that point about James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds, of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance will finish its work, making you mature and complete, lacking nothing. And so the idea is the stuff that we are going through that, that tends to make us feel like God is abandoning us what James 1 and 2 Corinthians 4, 17 are saying is, no, 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 it's making us holy. It's preparing us for heaven. This, this is a wonderful thing. The hardships, the afflictions prepare us for glory. What a, what a wonderful God that he would use hardship for our benefit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be, not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's a lot going on there, and it can be a little bit confusing. And the reason it's confusing is because Paul is basically carpet bombing us with metaphors. Like, there, there are so many metaphors here. And so my job really isn't to explain every option for every metaphor. It's to keep it simple and, and just give you the things that are primary. This primarily is a contrast between our temporal bodies, which are called a tent or, or more specifically a tabernacle. You know what a tabernacle is? 
It was the dwelling place of God that moved around with Israel, and, and it was the precursor for the temple. So it was, it was temporary. It, it, it wasn't going to last forever. That's, that's our physical earthly bodies. Temporal bodies called a tabernacle, they are being destroyed. There's a contrast between that and the eternal resurrection bodies that we one day will enjoy. They will never be destroyed. So temporal, prone to decay and destruction. Eternal, impervious to any consequence of sin. That, that's ultimately what's going on. Now, look at verses 2 and 3 again. We're going to kind of dive into this. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. This word naked, it's, it's interesting. We, get, we need to talk about it because Paul talks about it a lot. Some people think nakedness <clears throat> refers to a disembodied state. And, and I believe in a disembodied state. Here, here's how this works. I'm going to keep it as simple as I can. We have a physical body that is un, in decay. Okay, don't, don't get attached. It's not going to last forever. Okay, that's good news actually. Um, once you go to heaven... You're going to have, you're going to be in the presence of God in a disembodied state. And once Jesus returns, we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies, which are impervious to the consequence of sin, to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. So that, that time in heaven where we don't have resurrected bodies, it's, it's called a disembodied state, okay? I actually don't think the disembodied state, even though it's real, is being referenced in this passage. When it, when it talks about nakedness, some people think it refers to a disembodied state, but I think there's a difference between no body and a naked body. Hey, I, I just, I don't think you're embarrassed by disembodied. Like nakedness, I don't, I don't think that, that works. There's no body and then there's naked body and I'd much rather have no body than a naked body. That's the deal. And we're going to go on from here. Okay? Here's what I think it means. Since the fall. Since Genesis chapter 3. To be naked is to live exposed by and to the consequence of sin. That's what it means to be naked. To live exposed to and exposed by the consequence of sin. It's all of a sudden we sin and we don't have enough hands to cover up all the things that we're ashamed of. That's what nakedness is biblically. <clears throat> Paul isn't expressing doubt in verse 3. He, when, in verse 2, for in this tent, this one that is going away, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, that's the resurrected body, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Like, he, he's not saying, gosh, I hope it's not embarrassing. I, I hope in heaven we're, we're not ashamed and, and exposed and, and all of that. that. That's not what he's saying. In fact, it's a first-class conditional clause. So in verse 3, the if could be translated since. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, since indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. I actually love that. 
I love it because <clears throat> Paul is saying that in heaven, we will not feel the consequence of our sin any longer. I mean, how wonderful is that? Look at verses 4 and 5. He, he's really going to flip the script on us. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So when it says we, we groan, we look forward to, we, we want desperately, not that we would be unclothed in heaven like revealed, ashamed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We spend in this world most of our time lamenting or compensating for our nakedness, don't we? I mean, I want you to think about this really deeply for, for just a few minutes. Most of what we do is trying to compensate for the shame we feel over our sin. I, I think this is more pronounced than you might imagine. And, and I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 3. You, Adam and Eve, take of the forbidden fruit, and, and all of a sudden they're, they're ashamed. And what do they do? They, they try to sew fig leaves together and they, they try to cover themselves, right? Because they, they feel naked and they're like, oh, we're going to make garments. So they, they sew fig leaves together and they, they do a lot of work. Work is like religious activity. And, and it doesn't work, does it? And the reason we know that it doesn't work is because God, after they've sewn fig leaves, approaches them in the garden. And what do they do? They hide. So their best efforts at compensating didn't work. They're still ashamed. They're still running away from God. God in love pursues them in the garden. And that's basically been the script since the fall. Verses 4 and 5 flips the script. In verses 4 and 5, we see that there is both a physical and an emotional consequence of sin that we currently live under that will be fully eradicated. Let me say that again. There is both a physical and an emotional consequence of sin that will be fully eradicated. I spend a lot of time thinking about new heavens, new earth, new bodies, and, and the physical improvement that will come with a new heavenly body. I, I think we spend more time thinking about the physical restoration than we do about the emotional restoration. And, and at first I thought, well, that's just because we're shallow and we care about physical appearance more than the estate of our souls. I actually don't think that's true. I don't think we can easily imagine the eradication of the emotional consequence of sin. I, I just, I, I think... I can imagine me with hair. That's easy. To imagine me without insecurity, without frailty, without limitation in my soul, that is a profoundly more difficult imagination. I, I want you to think, I want to drill down on this a little bit. When you go to work, and your boss tries to motivate you, what does he or she do to motivate you? He or she preys on your insecurities. If you don't sell this amount, you're going to get docked. You're not going to get your bonus. Insecurities. 
If you don't close this deal, we're going to find somebody who can. Some of you are, are into athletics. How did your coaches motivate you? Look, if you can't hit for average, you're not going to stay in the three-hole. If you can't execute on whatever we're asking you to do, we can find somebody who can. Almost all the motivation in your life in some way preys on insecurity. So much so that I think people have a hard time contemplating a motivation absent of insecurity. As a Christian, we should find ourselves wholly secure based on what Jesus has done. That doesn't excuse us to passivity or laziness. It instead establishes us so that we can live and work and play and do whatever we do for God's glory, not to satisfy our own insecurities. It is hard to get to. I, I don't think because we swim in insecurity, we can imagine a world that is dry of insecurity. I, like, I think it is that hard, but that is exactly what this text is telling us awaits us in heaven. Paul can't wait for heaven because life swallows up death. Security swallows up shame. Immortality swallows up mortality. And all the frailties that go along with it are eradicated. And this, according to verse 5, is rooted in what God has done through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it is, by the way, guaranteed. That's the word that is used at the end of chap chapter four, verse, or sorry, five, verse five. It is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That word guaranteed, Greek term araban, I covered it in 1 Corinthians once, I'll go quickly. It means guarantee, it means down payment, it means earnest money, it, it means something in that realm. And the idea is that if the Holy Spirit is in you and has, has created change in you, that is like a down payment and God is guaranteeing that one day we will be in heaven and there will be the eradication of all that insecurity. And, and the Holy Spirit being here means he is committed to getting you to heaven where all of that will be eradicated. And if he welched on his commitment, he would have to send the third person of the Holy Trinity to hell. And of course, he would never do that. And that's how secure we are today, not just then, today. And that is really good news, and it results in verses 6 through 9. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. Repeats that. You should note that. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. What is Paul's point here? On the surface, and I think this is absolutely true, it is better to walk by sight than by faith. I think that's what Paul is saying. That's probably what you would have come up with. There's an emotional component of this that is embedded in this paragraph that, that I think says something slightly different, not contradictory, but just maybe adding to it. What is Paul's point here? It's this. The best is yet to come. 
The, the best is absolutely yet to come. For a Christian, death isn't defeat. For a Christian, death is commencement. We get to go be with Jesus. And that is wonderful news. We get to walk by sight, not by faith. I'm so glad God has given us faith. I, I really am. Like we can trust things that we can't fully understand yet, but how fun is it going to be to get to heaven and we get to understand? Like the, the lights go on, all the questions that we have about injustice and about why this happened to me when I was at this age and, and all of the stuff that holds us. We understand it. We understand that God is good in it and it doesn't hold us anymore. Can you imagine in heaven the impact of experiencing perfect love? I, I don't know that I can get there, y'all. Like, I, seriously, perfect love. You have never experienced perfect love. I, I know you moms out here, that, well, I love my kids perfectly. No, you don't. Ask them. <laughs> you don't. I, you, you're as close as we get in this world. You're a lot better than the dads. I'll, I'll grant you that. Comparatively, you want to compare yourself to dads, not God. Okay? You haven't experienced perfect love. We haven't experienced perfect love. But we will. But we will. And what comes with perfect love? Perfect security, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect everything. And I don't know that I can even imagine it. I, I read a thing in Reader's Digest. I mean, I, I bet it's been 25 years ago. This guy wrote this story about growing up in, in a small country church, and when he was a little kid, they'd have church potlucks. We have a church-wide meal. It's kind of the modern equivalent of a church potluck, but y'all didn't cook all the food. We had it catered in. <coughs> Consumers. Anyway, <coughs> this guy wrote, and he, he was like, church potlucks were so fun because all the ladies of the church, it was like their time to shine, right? They were going to cook their best meals, and they were going to bring it, and you know, they're all kind of comparing, and it's a lot of insecurity in that as well, but, <coughs> but they're like, the kids are the beneficiaries. I mean, they're just like, eating all this great food. And then after the meal, the, the ladies would come and they'd start clearing the dishes. And, and the thing that they would say that the kids always longed for was, keep your forks. Keep your forks. Because keep your forks meant dessert's coming. Like that, that's apple pie, cherry pie, blueberry cobbler, a la mode. I mean, like it was all coming. And they were like, it gets better. Keep your forks. Keep your forks. I am constantly tempted. I mean, I'm not kidding. This is a little window into the darkness of my soul. I am constantly tempted to think that my best years are behind me. That's, that's the reality. I've lost first and fifth gear physically. It's a constant reminder that physically and probably mentally, my best years are behind me. And this text is calling me, and I think it's calling you, to something different. Instead of lamenting what's gone, let's celebrate what's coming. 
That's what this text is calling us to. Let's celebrate what's coming and let's give God everything in the meantime until he takes us home to glory. That's why Paul says, so we don't lose heart in verse 16 of chapter 4. That's why Paul says, so we are always of good courage in chapter 5, verse 6. That's why Paul says, yes, we are of good courage again in verse 8 because he is looking forward. He is not looking backwards. He is not lamenting what he has lost. He is looking, longing with expectation of what one day he will gain and it's all because of what Jesus has done. About seven, maybe eight years ago, I met a guy named Tony Sandifer. And Tony had cancer, and it was terminal. And he knew it was terminal. And he had really, he had grown up in church, but it, it never really sunk in. And at the end of his life, it did. And, and he and his wife, Tracy, would come into my office a couple times a month when he had this terminal diagnosis. And Tony was amazing. I'll, I'll never forget Tony. He wanted to talk about two things. And it, it was the same two things every time we met. It was not additive. It was going back to the same things. He's like, tell me this thing again. The first thing was the gospel. Tony understood that his own works of self-righteousness created no security. And he wanted to hear about the finished work of Jesus, that he had died on a cross as the, to take the consequence of sin so that sinners like you and like me did not have to earn God's love. It would be given to them freely as an unmerited gift. He wanted, with a terminal cancer diagnosis, to hear that over and over again, it never got old. Never. Every time. Tell me about the gospel. And the next thing that he wanted to hear is the only other thing that we talked about. We talked about these two things. The gospel and heaven. He wanted to talk about heaven nonstop. And I, I got to see in those months that I, I knew Tony, I got to, to watch God wean Tony of his addiction to this world. I got to watch him Wean Tony of this addiction to this world, so much so that he actually rejoiced. I mean, think about this. He rejoiced in the idea of something far better awaiting him in heaven. And I think that should challenge us. Because I think most of us as Christians, we can get to the idea that heaven is some sort of consolation. Like, this, are, this is a great life, and it gets a little bit harder at the end, but at least we get heaven. Like, heaven's the booby prize or something. Like, it's, it's some sort of door prize for everyone else who didn't win. Heaven's the grand prize. It's not the booby prize, okay? Like, that, that's what Paul understands that we struggle with. That's what Tony understood. And heaven became the deep longing of his soul. Like, when he crossed from this life to the next, he crossed running. He did not, oh, don't let me go to, no. It was like, I can't wait. Get me to heaven. Are you there? 
I don't think I am. Not usually. But heaven is not a consolation. It is commencement. Look, whether you're 83 years old or 38 years old or trying to be something in between, here's the truth. You're dying. You're dying. And I, this is so hard because we've got all these 25-year-olds. I'm not dying. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. It'll be like that. You're dying. And, and Tony, he figured it out when he was dying. And my, my temptation is like, don't wait till you're dying. But the reality is you are dying. So figure it out. I mean, I, I'm, that's not even funny. And, and by the way, when I say you're dying, as a Christian, that's not morbid. It, it's not. Like you're like, oh, this is such a bummer. It's not about that. The point of the sermon is it's not a bummer. It's not morbid. It's wonderful. That, that's, that's why Paul doesn't lose heart. That's why Paul always has courage. Is because heaven awaits. The best is yet to come. Redemption is certain, and heaven awaits. And so when I die, I'll die before most of you. Don't be sad for me. Like, rejoice. We certainly get to go to Jesus. It's the best. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe this stuff. Help us to live lives in response to the belief that, that heaven awaits, heaven is certain, heaven is far greater, and, and these momentary afflictions prepare us for what we will enjoy eternally. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. He is our only hope, but he is our certain hope. God, I pray that we would live lives in this fallen world, in these fallen tabernacles with lives that evidence our hope in heaven. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.